Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, Chuck Harold. You could provide all the laws, all the resources, and enforce them as much as you want, but you still need the boots on the ground, those agents down there. Jason Piccolo, CPP, former senior staff officer with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is going to join me to speak about border security burnout. American management and American leadership is really changing and the new model is much more two-way. It's very much more of a team-oriented and uh, moving away from that old command and control model. Mr. Mark Tarallo, Senior Content Manager for Security Management Magazine, speaks with me about security management and leadership. Jason, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm really excited to talk about this topic today, border security burnout. So let's start by defining that. What does that mean exactly? Now, I consider border security burnout this. You're a new agent. You've been assigned to the border. The border is a 24-7 operation. You've been there for three to five years. You're working shifts 10 to 12 hours a day. You're getting called in on weekends. You just simply burn out. Now, tackle that onto you want to raise a family. You bring your, your family to an austere environment. There's no good schools. There's nothing for them to do. And you're just simply burnt out with no option to get out. So that's what I consider the burnout factor. And now you're looking at three to five years, everybody else is thinking the same thing. I need to get my family out of here. So then what do you do? You're going to be fighting for a different spot, maybe one or two spots in the interior of the country, if they're even available. Now, let's say you're a border patrol agent and there really is nowhere else to go. I mean, there's some spots in the northwest border or the northern border or there's headquarters, which is in Washington, D.C., maybe the academy. But how do you get off the border when you're 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 jockeying against thousands of other agents and officers. I know we have an overall shortage currently, and that's kind of based on some of the older laws and staffing laws back in the day, and we have, need to update those. But would you say there's a higher attrition rate because of these burnout issues? Now, each year, your attrit rate of the Border Patrol attrition rate is 750 agents. Now, that's 750 per year. Now, look at it this way. The bulk of the Border Patrol was hired in the 1990s, early 2000s under Operation Gatekeepers and other uh, other big operations at the border. Most of those agents are now going to be retiring in the next you know, five to 10 years. And what's happening is you could provide all the laws, all the resources, and enforce them as much as you want, but you still need the boots on the ground, those agents down there. And simply, if, if Congress doesn't pass those laws, we're not going to hire enough agents Sim- and even just in a border patrol to protect the the line. Look at the migration patterns now. You know, when I was in a border patrol, it was in the early 2000s. The big flux before that was in the 90s. That's why they hired thousands of border patrol agents. And the biggest groups back then were in the hundreds. Just the other day, there was a group, I believe, over a thousand, one group of migrants pushing through the border. How many border patrol agents does it take to apprehend a thousand? Even if they turn themselves in straight to the border patrol agent, that's a still a thousand migrants that you have to process. And processing isn't just as simple as taking a fingerprint. It's checking them for disease, taking the fingerprints, running them those fingerprints through NCIC to ensure that they're not a criminal alien, and then the, the vetting process. And then you couple that on top of what if these migrants are coming across as an alleged family unit? And now you have to put in a process of determining whether or not they're an actual family unit. And a lot of times that now they're used in uh, field tests for DNA, you know, rapid DNA analysis, not field tests. So, I mean, the, the whole system is just overflowed right now. And you could throw every law in a book at it. But until you stop that migration pattern, 
and you bolster up our forces at the border, forces being, you know, staff and personnel, it's just simply not going to stop. Well, that's a fair comment. So let's go back to staffing. With burnout, do we get a high turnover rate? Maybe more so than normal law enforcement. Well, the thing with about the border is, let's say you get assigned to the southwest border as an agent officer. There's really a lot of times there's no way to get out of that situation. There's no way to transfer out. So you could be stuck down there for your career. So what happens, you start looking for a different career, whether in the federal government or you move on to a different career altogether. And I've seen that happen a ton of times. So I'd like to find out what those metrics are as far as how many agents. Let's say out of 10 agents, I've personally witnessed three or four agents either moving on to another agency or just quitting the federal government as a whole. So I didn't come from federal. I came from city. And in the city, I can transfer within a department to different assignments. I could put in for motors, canine, so on. Or I could just go next door mm-hmm. to the other city. Fairly easy process, a lateral transfer. Not the same process and not so easy in the federal government. Like you said, they say you're being staffed in Yuma and that's your career until they decide you're going to move. Is that accurate? Well, you can put in for transfers. You can put in for other assignments. But the issue is so many other people are putting in for those same transfers and right. same assignments. So if you don't have anything that sets you apart from them, even if you you know bust your butt and work as hard as you can, it still comes down to the powers that be that are going to assign you to another post. What would you suggest are some solutions to help this? Offer a rotation out of the southwest border. Hire more agents and don't contract out like they they try to do because you not only need to hire new agents, you need to hire more human resource personnel because in order to get these agents into the pipeline to get them hired, you need HR staff. And a lot of people leave that that variable out of it. So hire enough HR staff that could process thousands of applications. So let's say you have 5,000 applications, maybe a thousand can make it through the pipeline, but you need enough human resource staff to process a thousand applicants. And that's only for one agency. Let's say that's just border patrol. But then if you throw in ICE, Customs and Border Protection, which has different branches, it's just, you need those 10,000 people on the border. Now, those are very good points. Let's talk about the ratio then of sworn law enforcement to non-sworn support personnel. It seems like you're saying that it's low. Uh, I mean, if you have to process those thousand people that crossed the border the other day, are the agents doing that? Or is that being passed off to a back office where there's, uh, you know, non-sworn civilians helping out? Well, that's the other issue is that it's agents and officers doing that. So maybe that's another variable you could throw into the, the mix is hire non-law enforcement staff to process the migrants. That's, you know, I, that's a great idea. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a, a white paper together and push that up. <laughs> well, we solved this. We solved all the problems. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, well, I always wondered about that because you hear them saying the agents are doing the processing. And I was curious if that was actual. So that could be part of this, now, this issue. And, that, and that's another variable you put into it. You have 16,000 Border Patrol agents for the southwest border. That's 2,000 miles of border for 16,000 people. Now, when people say 16,000, that includes management staff. That includes uh, specialized units. That includes everything in the Border Patrol. That's just the Border Patrol. Now, 2,000 miles, you're thinking, oh, you know, that, that's enough. But what if you throw in there that you actually, that's a 24-7 mission. And then you, you tap into there that you have to um, process the migrants. You need to enforce the, um, you need to hold the line, i.e. patrol the border. So that's 16,000 people to do that, not factoring in leave, 
sick, anything. So you really, you, if you take, you add another thousand support personnel to process the, the migrants, that, that might be one variable to help, but it's still not going to solve the problem. So what I think I'm hearing is even though in the media we see a lot of political issues on both sides about this, it sounds like it's really just kind of coming down in the end to some logistics and good old-fashioned management, and it's not as political as it seems, maybe. On the ground, it's not. But that also, the political part of it comes into this, is you're gonna you're having so many migrants pass through the border and flow to the border from everywhere in the world through our southwest border because they know no laws are going to get passed anytime soon. If they get a foothold into the United States, then maybe they will have some sort of immigration benefit handed down to them if they're here. And right now, think about it, it's a lottery. Let's say the lottery is $800 million. You never played a lottery before, but hey, that's $800 million. I better take my shot now. Think about it if you're an, an uh, immigrant down south or somewhere in the world and you say, hey, right now the lottery is open. I better get in there before they close it down. So right now you're seeing tens of thousands of people trying to flow into the United States, claiming asylum, getting lost in the system, and just knowing that they may win the lottery. Now, I think you mentioned earlier uh, something about contractors. Are there are there people that the government hires to help supplement the uh, border agents? Well, the contractors, they hired uh, contractors to actually hire more ICE officers, and it just oh. didn't work <laughs> out. It didn't work out at all. Like they outsourced yeah. the HR part of it? That's what they, they something like that? Yes, they tried to outsource. And it wasn't even the full HR because you still need the HRs to do the final offer. So it just didn't work. Now, you've been involved uh, or were involved in the past about 19 years in this in law enforcement. Give me your perspective on your, your biggest concern. What, in this issue, what do you worry about the most? What's bothering you about this entire issue? Do we have a multi-agency task force that includes OGA, or other government agencies, FBI, ICE, all working together? Or are we back to the old days of pre-9-11 information sharing? Listen to the boots on the ground. That is where the ground truth is. A lot of times you see these five-minute photo ops at the border from both sides. I want to see an actual conversation with the GS-13, GS-12, GS-9 agent officer on the border that's actually doing the work and actually saying, hey, this is the real deal. This is the ground truth. Jason Piccolo, CPP. Fascinating conversation. We could go for hours on this. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thank you, sir. Mark, welcome to Security Management Highlights. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Now, we're going to talk about management and leadership in security. I love this topic. I've spoken about it or practiced it for many, many years, but it's changing. It's 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 not your dad's security management model anymore, right? What has shifted in the industry and how security management leadership is being handled these days? Yeah, it, it's there's a few shifts. And like you say, it's a really fascinating area. You have the idea now of security managers, especially directors of security, CSOs, should be a true member of the C-suite. Yet many of these security directors, security managers, they haven't had a lot of formal management and leadership training, nor have they had educational experiences like MBAs and years in a business school. They need to be in the C-suite. At the same time, sometimes they feel a little bit uncomfortable when they're working with executives who are considered business experts and have MBAs and have all these credentials. From the macro point of view, it's a really interesting time for management and leadership because the whole model is changing. 
Traditionally, I think especially security, an industry like ours worked on a command and control model where the manager, the director gives the orders and the staff follows. But American management and American leadership is really changing and the new model is much more two-way. It's about the leader coaching staff, the, the staff giving feedback to the coach, the coach giving feedback to staff. It's very much more of a team-oriented um, and uh, moving away from that old command and control model. So it's really an interesting time to be discussing and writing about management and leadership. Now, what's interesting about that is that you really need, in security situations and environments, you need a specific hierarchy and command and control because when everything goes bad, you need to be able to take charge and direct, let's say, active shooter or hurricane or some, some major crisis or event in your organization. So speak to me about how that new model can handle those sort of situations. It's, it's really a toggle approach. There's situations when something happens. And as you say, you need the hierarchy. You need, you know, control. This person is in charge. This person will be giving directions, directives, maybe orders. But then though that's usually not a 24/7 arrangement you're not always on in crisis mode or in something happening mode a lot of the time you're just the manager and staff are discussing issues discussing ideas discussing a project how they're going to approach that and so i think it's possible and in fact people say they have good results with this is to be able to go back and forth from those two modes, depending on which mode is called for. I came from law enforcement right into studio work. And I was chosen because, I don't know, out of 400 people, the guy liked my resume. Who knows what it was? It was kind of a a guess, you know, either way you slice it. But I had to quickly learn that police work and security are not the same things. That's the first thing Uh, I learned. First thing I learned. And then I had to start learning the language of business and learning the language of the C-suite, which is, again, a foreign language, really, if you haven't been into it. So the mentoring part, I think, is really fascinating because I need to get that guy that, that's been there for a while to kind of teach me the ropes. Talk to us about mentoring in these leadership positions and, and how, that, how that's changing the way we adapt. Yeah, it, it really is changing. And it's really uh, mentoring's become this multifaceted thing because you have mentoring in all different directions. You can have it kind of what you just mentioned of the security manager is mentored by say, oh, could be even like VP of sales or uh, even the CEO, him or herself. And that mentoring has to do with the business side of the operation. Obviously, this, the the security manager will still know the ins and outs of the business, but his or her knowledge won't be at the level of this high business executive that's mentoring them. You can have a mentoring situation there where that's really about business strategy, business 
uh, operations, business results, things like that. And at the same time, the security manager may be mentoring security staff members on more security type of issues because, you know, the security manager has all this experience, has the, the real depth from working so many years in the business. Another facet has become with the rise of technology, uh, you have what's called reverse mentoring. The security manager, let's say he or she uh, is about 50 years old, they may be reverse mentored by a 25-year-old staffer. And those subjects could be things like social media, better use of IT, mobile, all the aspects of the contemporary IT world. And, you know, a security manager may have a lot to learn with that. And those applications, let's say they're reverse mentoring where the security manager is learning more about social media, that can play in to the security manager's relationship with the CEO because social media now is a bigger part of a lot of businesses. All different mentoring relationships going on there and there can be a synergy between all of them. So let's talk about how the relationship with the C-suite has changed with management. Back in the day, If I never went to Mr. Murdoch's office, I was very happy about that, right? (laughs) Because I was a cost center, not really part of the plan, right? Nowadays, security is on the top level of of board of members' decisions and incorporating into all the C-suite decisions because of the the world we live in, basically, right? So that, that makes it important, but of course, it also puts you in a higher profile. What are your thoughts on on inviting security into the C-suite. We have the CISOs, but I'm talking about the basic guy. There's not a lot of C-level security people as much as there are directors, maybe vice presidents, right? They need to be right. in that C-suite, don't you think? They, they do. And um, there's, a, there's what a, a lot of people have told me in interviews is there's real opportunity there. There's opportunity to get away from the mindset of, okay, security is a cost center, it's an expense and that's it. And more toward, it can also be an enabler. It can also be a great partner when we're expanding business. It can be a source even of new business opportunities. There's So there's real, just a range of opportunities that are waiting for a security person in the C-suite. It's a matter not only of trying to realize those opportunities, but also gaining trust, gaining the trust of the other executives, where the other executives say, okay, this security manager, he or she does understand our business and they do understand business fundamentals. So I can trust them when they when they give their opinions, when they propose an idea what will help our business, uh, I'm going to listen, basically. Well, that's a brilliant point. Now, tell me how you define leadership in security with the new model, because in the old model was, I'm the security director. I'm at the top of this flowchart, chain of command, therefore I'm the leader, and I dictate down and give you orders to follow, right? Kind of paramilitary. And, you know, that that kind of worked in the old environment. But how are we going to define that leadership role now so the average person in a security department can understand that it's different? It, I think a good way to understand it is it has shifted 
where the focus is not on the leader giving direction, but leadership is about allowing all your staff to not only fulfill their potential, but even go beyond it. A great leader will have staff where staffers say, I can't believe what I've accomplished under this leader. I never thought I could do that. I've just, my skill set has grown unbelievably. My confidence level has grown unbelievably. People, as one leader, successful security leader told me, leadership means that your staff's performance basically goes through the roof. I wanted my staff to function without me. My goal was I can walk out this door, get hit by a bus, and the whole department's going to keep functioning. I think that was my goal back in the day. It, it's it's true. And it's it's funny because we talk about this being the new model of leadership. But if you go back, oh, you know, thousands of years ago to the uh, ancient Chinese sages, there was one, um, I forget his name right now, but his, his famous saying was, a great leader is such that his people say, we did it ourselves. Exactly. And so that <laughs> focus on staff performance, that's really at the core of leadership in, in the industry these days. I think when you speak about a department that has different levels to support the director or the CISO or their mission, it's easier done than said. I think it can work, right? But let's right. talk about an average department, an average business. Maybe there's a security, quote, manager. There's three or four guards. How do we translate that leadership down to that level? Because that's going to be the majority of people protecting our assets these days. It's not the giant corporation that has all the money they need to make this work, right? We got to get it down to the, the basic guy that understands it's your baby and these are your people and let's, let's do it. And I think what they do on the smaller companies, they're going to wait for somebody to phone them up and say, do this. That, that's right. That's right. What, what leadership experts are often say now is that let, let's use your the example you just gave of you've got a security director and maybe there's three or four people, guards or whatever their positions are below that person. And what, what experts now say is that the security director should be having, you know, when it's appropriate, a series of continual conversations with all three of these staff members. And in those conversations, the security director is getting to know each individual staffer better and better. Their abilities, their skill sets, their their feelings about the mission, their feelings about their own career, what they want to do, their potential strengths and weaknesses, things like that. For the security director, they're learning more and more and more about the staff. And on the other hand, the director knows what the company's mission is, what the mission is of the security department. And so it's the, it's the director's job to make the best connection between each staffer and that mission. So use his or her skill set in the best way possible. Not only even going beyond that, find out, you know, what each staffer 
is inspired by, what they love to do, what they love about the mission, and use that knowledge to best advantage in making assignments and coaching them, things like that. So again, the staffer's performance just skyrockets, but also the the department's mission and the company's mission help gets fulfilled. I think that's a brilliant way to do it. I used to go ask my staff, what did you do before you were a guard? And you found a mm-hmm. bunch of skill sets that were super duper. I had one, uh, my favorite guard of all time, Kamani, used to work at the loading dock. And it was near the editing bay. It's a very quiet area. You don't make a lot of noise. She couldn't stop talking. Talk, 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 talk. And we had to write, We kept writing her up all the time. We always wrote her up for talking. So I said, you know what? I want you to put her at the front desk where she had 2,000 visitors a day come by the desk. And guess what? We want you to talk. We want you to go chit-chat, chit-chit-chat and greet people and say hello and welcome to the studio, blah, blah, blah. And she excelled. She excelled at that, right? So if identifying your subset of skills and getting the right person in the right spot is so important. And that really comes from leadership insight. You just gave kind of the perfect example where her her communication abilities, that's a real skill set. And so you were saying, okay, let's put those to best use, to best advantage. And her performance in that appropriate role was great. Let's talk about our final thing. How do we bring security technology into this when you got old guys, and I'm an old guy, so I'm going to say it, who might not get technology as well as the young people. You spoke about mentoring up, which is important, yeah. right? But how much is, is is technology, let's say, helping and possibly interfering with this new model? Some people just can't get the technology. You know, it, it's a that's a really good point. You can say uh, interfering may be a strong word, but certainly it has the potential to have a negative influence. But there again, beyond the reverse mentoring, um, I think that if a security manager can informally partner with an IT person in the company, it, it's a huge resource because when you think of it, you know, the CEO of the company and, and likely a lot of the executives, they often are not technology whizzes themselves. They just have this basic understanding of it. They know the business. I think if a security manager gets to a certain working knowledge of what the technologies can do and then works with an IT person for the more technical stuff, it, it can be a really uh, productive relationship. And that comes down to trusting your staff. And that's one of the key elements of leadership. My guest has been Mark Torello, Senior Content Manager for Security Management Magazine. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. It's a fascinating subject. And uh, let's do it again. Thanks, Chuck. I'd love to.